Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 180, Ghosts and Shadows of Automobile Row, with Ken Liss. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, Ken Liss is going to tell us about an era when Comav and Alston was the epicenter of the automotive business in Boston. In the early 20th century, car dealerships, tire companies, parts distributors, and other related businesses lined what was known as Automobile Row, a sort of urban forefather of the suburban Automile. Ken's going to tell us what made these early dealerships special, who some of the personalities behind Automobile Row were, and where you can see traces of this history today. Ken is the president of the Brookline Historical Society, and he writes and speaks frequently on local history. Like our guest last week, and our guest next week, Ken was scheduled to speak at History Camp Boston on March 14th, before the pandemic forced it to move to July. But before we talk about the car business on Com Ave, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is... The Forgotten Aquariums of Boston by Jerry Ryan. Originally published in 1995, this slim volume is a history of the aquariums in Boston that preceded today's magnificent New England Aquarium. It mostly focuses on the several incarnations of the Boston Aquarial Gardens, which opened in April 1859. The preface to the third edition points out that just 85 years after Paul Revere's famous ride, an entirely different kind of ride was taking place in the heart of Boston's downtown crossing. This ride was performed by a woman seated in a nautilus-shaped boat being pulled by a beluga whale through the largest tank in the first aquarium in the United States. If you think that's incredible, then keep reading. You're about to unravel a complicated story featuring a brilliant inventor named Cutting and an infamous showbiz entrepreneur named Barnum who managed to circulate 600,000 gallons of seawater from Boston Harbor to Boston Common without electricity. The story begins with banjo-playing, gun-toting harbor seals, proceeds through a den of serpents, and, without giving too much away, features a tragic one-way trip to an asylum. And the story doesn't stop there. The book recounts how P.T. Barnum gradually transformed Boston's original aquarial gardens into more of a zoo, before seizing control and turning it into one of his variety shows, featuring attractions like General Tom Thumb and the Fiji Mermaid. Then, 50 years after Barnum's Aquarium closed up shop, the book covers a new aquarium based in South Boston, and how that venture helped spawn today's New England Aquarium. The book's heavily illustrated with historic photos, documents, illustrations, advertisements, and more, and the whole thing runs to about 75 pages, not counting appendices. The best part is that it's available to download as a free PDF from the New England Aquarium website, so you don't have to wait for the library to reopen or for Amazon to deliver. You can start reading today. Does this spring of social distancing have you missing sports? Well, you're in luck then. Our first virtual event this week is a session with Red Sox historian Gordon Eads, thanks to the Massachusetts Historical Society. Bring your questions about the Sox and baseball to this unique event. The MHS says, Join Red Sox historian Gordon Eads in a virtual Q&A, where he'll take your questions on one of baseball's most legendary and celebrated franchises. 
subscribers will get access to a curated list of videos from the MHS Program Archive to watch at home. This content will help viewers engage with the Red Sox lore ahead of the question and answer session. The event's free, but advanced registration is required. After you register, you'll get the link to join the webinar, as well as links to the videos to review in advance. And I know it's hard to believe that it's already April, but that's what happens when the whole society stays indoors for a month. With April comes Patriot's Day, one of the most important dates on Boston's revolutionary calendar. For many families, the reenactment on Lexington Green is a treasured part of their Patriot's Day tradition. But of course, large gatherings like that are verboten these days. Luckily, the Lexington Historical Society's decided to take Patriot's Day online. They have a whole series of events planned from April 18th to the 20th. The whole thing starts out with a portrayal of Deborah Sampson, who dressed as a man to serve in the Continental Army. On Saturday, April 18th, Judith Kalora of History at Play will transform herself first into Deborah Sampson, and then into Robert Shirtliff, the name under which she enlisted in the Continental Army. On Sunday the 19th, children's author Jenny L. Coate will explain what happened on the original Patriot's Day by reading selections from her book, The Declaration, the Sword, and the Spy. The highlight comes on April 20th, when the famous battle on Lexington Green will be reenacted not on Lexington Green, but instead on your computer screen. Many of us know the story of the Battle of Lexington, that the plucky band of local militia faced off against the mighty British army on the town common on April 19, 1775. But what actually happened on the battle green that day, and how did we get to that point? Join the Lexington Historical Society for a deeper dive into the story of that day, as they show their award-winning short film, First Shot, The Day the Revolution Began. Following this viewing, local reenactors with experience recreating the battle will be available to answer your questions about the history of the battle, the context of the Revolutionary War, and what it's like to step back in time and relive the past. Rounding off the program will be a performance by Diane Taraz, founder and leader of the Lexington Historical Society Colonial Singers. What will it be like to watch Patriot's Day unfold on a laptop screen? Check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 180 for the links you need for that, as well as a link to Forgotten Aquariums of Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Hey listeners, this is Jake of the Future from the Editing Room, just pointing out that in this next sequence, I refer to Josh Clark of the Stuff You Should Know podcast as Jock, and I apologize for that. Before I bring in Ken Liss, I just want to pause for a moment. It's been funny to watch all our favorite shows make the transition to social distancing. Late-night talk show hosts first did their monologues in empty theaters, then from their living rooms and backyards. Only people in the audience right now are some members of my staff. Hi, guys. I'm going I'm to I'm sit down over here. Mm-hmm. Okay. Hey, everybody. Hi. Welcome to my bathroom. I'm your host, Stephen Colbert. You're watching a very special social distancing edition of The Late Show, or as I now call it, The Lather Show with Scrub and Colbert. CNN correspondents have been giving updates from their basements. A lot of news. CNN tonight, D. Lemon on top of all of it, as always. What's going on today? Something's different about your set. Is it? Yeah. 
We're just, I've worked on this hard. Even big-time podcast hosts like Jock and Chuck of Stuff You Should Know or Ira Glass of This American Life are having to adjust to bringing the studio home. Uh, I think everyone knows right now that we are now set up to record apart from one another. Yes, Chuck. Um, so my first question before we have to get serious is, what are you wearing? I knew it. <laughs> uh, we have all been holed up in our own homes. Um, everybody on the staff, we are one of the many businesses that have decided that it is safer for everybody if uh, we're working from home. For us small-time indie podcasters, not much has changed. If I sound different this week, it's because I'm not recording in my usual space. I mean, pandemic or not, I'm still usually podcasting from the same improvised vocal booth in the home office, made out of a TV tray and an old moving pad. But since I've been at the desk in that home office all day, every day, for four weeks, I decided to mix things up today and go down the hall to the spare room. Listen, my ask is a little bit different this week. America's basically experienced all the job losses of the entire Great Depression within the past month. If you still have a job and you can afford it, support a local history organization you have a connection with or a historic site. Donate to a food pantry, get takeout from a local restaurant, or order a book from a local bookstore. Once you've done all those things, if you still want to support what we do here at Hub History, we appreciate it. To get started, just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the support link. Thanks a lot. Now it's time for this week's main topic. Ken Liss is the head of instruction for the Boston University Library System, and he's an independent researcher with a strong interest in the history of what was once known as Automobile Row. Ken Liss, I just want to say welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Ken, you're the second of what I'm calling our History Camp refugees. So you were, <laughs> scheduled, you were scheduled to speak at History Camp Boston in March. Your topic was going to be the ghosts and shadows of Automobile Row. And then, of course, History Camp got delayed until July, thanks to COVID-19. Can you start out by just explaining where in Boston Automobile Row was and when it was at its peak? Well, it ran along Commonwealth Avenue from Kenmore Square uh, to more or less Packard's Corner, which is where uh, Commonwealth Avenue makes a big turn to the left and uh, Brighton Avenue continues straight, although some of the automobile row uh, businesses and buildings were, were around the bend or on Brighton Avenue as well, but mainly from Kenmore Square to, to Packard's Corner. And uh, it started more or less around 1910 and uh, continued to, to some extent in, into the 1980s, but really the the, the heyday ended in, in the 50s and 60s. So who were some of the car makers who would have been represented on Automobile Row? Were there makes that we wouldn't recognize today? Oh, so many. Uh, one of the things that I learned as I was researching this is uh, how many how many names and makes and models there were that I'd never heard of before, <laughs> uh, as well as many that we know very well. So uh, uh, Cadillac and Packard and uh, Pierce Arrow, some some that are no longer around, but are fairly well known, um, but others that are still here too, Chevrolet uh, and, and many, many others. So if the automobile row is really getting rolling around 1910, that can't be the first center of the automotive business in Boston. There, there was a car industry for at least a few years before that. What, where, was the, uh, auto, where were auto dealers coming from when they moved out to automobile row? 
Well, initially, a lot of the auto dealers were in existing spaces that were not built specifically for automobile dealerships. But uh, the first kind of uh, center of the automobile trade was something called the Motor Mart in Park Square, which opened in 1906 as a a large building that was home to multiple dealers. And uh, that was where... um, Motor Mart still still exists. An old, uh, a newer building replaced it uh, in later decades, and is still there. Is at a hotel built on top of it. Um, but that was that was in many ways the first center, the most prominent of the locations where many dealers were were gathered. So, if the the automobile industry in Boston was centered at first around Park Square, who starts first moving out to Commonwealth Avenue? Well, the the person probably most responsible for the growth of the Commonwealth Avenue Auto Row was Alvin T. Fuller. He wasn't the first, but uh, he brought a a new kind of auto dealership that really led to to many changes. And he started in his hometown of Malden as a bicycle dealer, later added uh, automobiles in Malden, and then established a business in Park Square before the Motor Mart opened and then moved into the Motor Mart with along with many other dealers. But just three years after the opening of the Motor Mart in 1906, uh, in 1909, he announced he was building a new facility on Commonwealth Avenue in Alston at what later became known as Packard's Corner. And that was a very different kind of dealership and really opened up the way for the growth of the new automobile row. And so what makes were Alan Fuller selling at the time? Well, he he, he sold a, a number of different cars initially. Uh, the Packard is what he was most known for. He also sold uh, uh, an automobile known as the Northern. Uh, he added Cadillacs at one point as a uh, more affordable alternative to Packard, <laughs> which, is, which is kind of fun. Um, but that's that's uh, it was uh, Packard's that was mainly what he was known for. So – is Packard's Corner named after the Packard motor car, or is that just a coincidence? Well, uh, the stories that uh, when I started researching this, I, I had heard and read in other places that it was called Packard's Corner before he established his business there. There was a man named Packard who had a, a stable and a riding school, uh, not quite in the corner, but nearby. Uh, I, I've kind of cast some doubt on that. Uh, I, I haven't seen any use of the term until 1941. So oh. I, I kind of doubt that uh, it was actually named for this other Packard who was indeed in the area. So I, I think it really was named for the Packard dealership that Fuller established. Now, I want to come back in just a second and talk more about that dealership. But before I do, what made somebody like Alvin T. Fuller want to move out to Comav? Was it simply the fact that it was undeveloped space or was there something about that area that was fertile ground for auto businesses. Well, I, I think the undeveloped space was a big part of it. Uh, the taxes were cheaper. Uh, it was further out. Um, some of the buildings, although not uh, not not the Packard building that he built, uh, some of them on the south side of Commonwealth Avenue were, were, were in Brookline, not in Boston. Um, but uh, it was also a place where uh, there was automobile traffic. So uh, it wasn't as crowded as... Uh, Park Square, and you had people coming by both in automobiles and also on the, 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 the streetcars, so that the showrooms that were built along Commonwealth Avenue had a lot of traffic where their, their wares could be seen. So that was a big part of it as well. Now, you mentioned showrooms, and you, you talked about Alvin Fuller's uh, Packard dealership being 
pretty unique. And for most of us, when I think about buying my last car, I went out to the suburbs, out to the current auto mile in Norwood and went to a big paved parking lot that had hundreds of, in my case, Subarus parked on it. Um, and then a small building sort of at the corner where you would go in and talk to a salesman and talk to the finance person, try not to get ripped off too badly. <laughs> but it sounds like the car dealerships of this period on the on Automobile Row on Com Ave are very different from what we picture most car dealerships being like today. They, they really were. They, they, they were really uh, showcases and showrooms. And, and part of that was as the automobile was still relatively new mm-hmm. that uh, people wanted assurance of quality, of, uh, of luxury, of stability with so many car companies. Uh, they wanted to be sure that the uh, company was continue, would continue to be around. Um, so the facilities had uh, showrooms with large plate glass windows where you could see the cars, but they were much more than that. They were really full service uh, facilities with uh, elaborate architecture. The Packard building was designed by an architect named Albert Kahn, who uh, was a, quite a well-known uh, architect. He did a lot of work for Henry Ford, including the famous uh, River Rouge plant in Dearborn, Michigan, uh, and, and many others. It was said in the 1930s that uh, of the about one-fifth of the industrial buildings in the U.S. had been designed by Albert Kahn. And he, de- he designed this building. Uh, it had a uh, a park adjacent to the building that was 350 feet by 190 feet with elm trees, oak, tree, oak trees, maple trees, and iron fence. Uh, cars would drive through the park to the car entrance. Uh, it was really different than, than anything that had been done. And the interior of the showroom uh, had 28-foot-high ceilings, mahogany chairs and tables. There was a telephone exchange, bathrooms, a mezzanine where the office workers uh, were all stationed. So, so those were the kinds of things that the, the customers would see, but there was much, much more because it was really, uh, the building was said had 256 skilled mechanics. There was a stock room with parts for every Packard and Cadillac model ever built. Uh, <laughs> they didn't build the cars there, but it was said they had enough parts to put one together. <laughs> there, there were body shops, a blacksmith, a fabric shop, a machine wash, a car wash. Uh, in, in some of the luxury cars in those days, they would change the bodies in winter and summer, and they'd bring them there to be changed. So they would they would shift the uh, the body from the winter body to the <laughs> summer body. And it was said the top floor could, could work on 75 cars at a time. There were two large dining rooms, one for the office workers and one from the, for the mechanics. So it was really a, a, a full-service center that wouldn't have been possible uh, in, in the early showrooms that were made in buildings that were, had other purposes and not even really in, in, in the motor mart. It's interesting. You've mentioned the Rouge River plant in Michigan and that you always picture trees and iron ore coming in one end of that and a Model T rolling out the other <laughs> end. And it sounds like some of the businesses, some of the, the dealerships along Com Ave were almost the, the retail version of that with everything housed under one roof. Yes, they, they really were, were, were full service operations. Um, uh, Fuller was, was successful enough that uh, Within seven years, he expanded and built a second wing for trucks and used cars, um, and uh, later enclosed the front too. So uh, he, he, this building was a, a major expansion of what he had in Park Square, and the building itself was expanded two times and and really 
provided a lot of uh, full service for everybody. After Packard, what were the other early uh, car manufacturers to have a presence on Automobile Row? Well, some of the the others that that came very soon in the wake of, of Packard's innovation were at the other end, at, at the Commonwealth, uh, the Kenmore Square end, the, the mm-hmm. Kenmore Square end of, of uh, Automobile Row, um, in buildings that are that are still there today, uh, and there were Peerless Auto um, and um, uh, I'm trying to remember the names of the other ones there, but there were, there were several that were, were there at the same time. And these two were large, uh, full-service buildings. Uh, one of those buildings where Peerless Auto was is the building that now has the Citco sign on top of it. And while the building to the west of it has been torn down, uh, that building and the, and the two former auto uh, dealerships that were next to it are, are still there and, as I understand it, are, are going to remain. Was Automobile Row just car dealers, uh, you know, selling you a, a finished automobile, or were there other automotive-related businesses along that strip? There were a lot of automotive-related businesses, uh, tires and parts, and and, uh, and and many other kinds, and uh, and 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 again, lots of other deals that filled in that space between Kenmore and, and uh, Packard's Corner as well. Um, many of which are now uh, buildings used by Boston University where I work. So, um, uh, and, and, uh, in the, I believe it was in the 1930s, uh, it was said there were as many as, uh, 117, uh, auto related businesses wow. along Commonwealth Avenue. Is that roughly when the number of businesses would have peaked? Do you think? I think so. Yeah. Just to help me sort it out in my mind, we're not talking about manufacturing automobiles in on the auto mile or the the auto mile on the uh, automobile row or on comav right we're talking more retail right these were these were retail there was uh, just just across what's now the bu bridge mm-hmm. in uh, cambridge there was a ford uh, factory where where cars were actually built but uh, but not in not in any of the ones along commonwealth avenue they were uh, some of them were uh, kind of central distributorships so uh, so Part of the reason they were so large is that automobiles of different makes would be sent there from the factories and then distributed to dealerships around around New England. So one of the buildings that uh, uh, came a little bit later, uh, that's uh, an, another uh, of probably equally uh, impressive to the Packard building, is the building that's now the College of Fine Arts at Boston University and was a, a Buick dealership that... Uh, that opened in uh, 1920, um, and it was opened by uh, a man named um, Harry Noyes, who began as a uh, he had a Buick dealership in in Lowell, and uh, he then took over a building that had been a a stable uh, owned by an African American businessman named Henry Turner. That um, Turner got into automobiles briefly. But then uh, it, in 1909, it was taken over by Buick. Noise then took it over. And in 1920, he built this uh, building that's now the College of Fine Arts that, like the Packard building, was a, a full-service building. And he was the leading distributor of Buicks um, in, in New England uh, through the 1940s. Uh, the building was bought by Boston University in the 1960s, and this is this is one of the more fascinating uh, uh, buildings. Uh, one of, one of the reasons I called my uh, earlier talk on this uh, "Ghosts and Shadows" is there are there are remnants of these buildings, and and this building in 
uh, on the first floor with, with in the building that uh, the space that has been uh, an art gallery for the College of Fine Arts has probably the most fun of all the, the ghosts and shadows. There are some Corinthian columns inside the space and a grand staircase. And at the tops of the columns are gargoyle-like figures that are actually auto mechanics. <laughs> That's great. So you say Harry Noyes started creating this this Buick empire in the 1920s and was certainly active, um, sounds like, through the 1940s. I'm just old enough that I can remember before every car on the road was a Toyota. Old enough to remember coming out of a store one day and somebody left a note on our family car saying, buy American a-hole. When did foreign car manufacturers start to have a presence on Automobile Row? I think they came much, much later. Uh, I, I, I can't say for certain, but I, I believe it was more like the 1960s. And I think it may have given a, a little bit of a late surge to uh, Auto Row. One of the dealers who uh, was selling foreign cars at that point was Peter Fuller, who was the son of Alvin T. Fuller. And he uh, had taken over uh, the, a, a later building, which, uh, which we definitely should talk about, which is the, uh, uh, the Fuller Cadillac uh, building um, uh, right by the BU Bridge. But by the 60s, he was uh, also selling foreign cars further down, further west on Commonwealth Avenue. So it sounds like the foreign cars started to move in just sort of at the tail end of the heyday before the decline of automobile row. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think in some ways the, the decline sort of started after, after world war two and especially in the fifties as uh, some of the, uh, the growth of the suburbs and, 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 and the buy, the car buying public was moving out to the suburbs and even some of the Commonwealth Avenue auto dealers uh, started displaying their cars in parking lots on Commonwealth Avenue. And that became kind of, more what we we have today, where you you drive in and there are just lots of cars parked in a big parking lot. So the the the, the big showrooms with the glass windows were were kind of fading away. So I I, I think the, the the growth of the foreign dealerships kind of gave a little um, maybe extended auto row for a little while. Now I want to circle back uh, to the comment you just made about Fuller's Cadillac dealership. So what made that business distinct from his his Packard business? Well, I, I think uh, probably with the, the, the changes in the fortunes of the different automobile companies, maybe some consolidation with, uh, with General Motors and others and, uh, and fewer automobile companies, he in 1928 had the, uh, the Fuller Cadillac Olds building built, also designed by Albert Kahn. It was actually built by the Cadillac company um, for um, Fuller. And like the Packard building, it was really a full service building. And it's, uh, um, he sold, uh, whereas initially he introduced Cadillacs as the lower priced alternative to Packards. Here he was selling Cadillacs as the higher priced and Oldsmobiles <laughs> as the lower priced. Um, but, uh, it was, it was very similar in, uh, the way it worked and in, in that it had a, uh, sales departments and service departments. It had and and still has a ramp that goes over the five floors of the building, 
that was wide enough for, for two cars. So cars could be going in both directions and, and, and pass one another um, going up and down. Um, the building is now owned by Boston University. I've walked those ramps. Uh, there are a lot of student art projects that take place in that building. And there's the detritus of a lot of the art projects that fill some of those ramps. But there are <laughs> still signs saying don't walk on ramps and and uh, and, and, and other clear indications of uh, of its past that right off the bat gives to me a picture of how different the dealerships along com Ave were than what we're used to in sort of the suburban auto mile today that the simple fact that it's a multi-story building with with different elements of the dealership uh, happening on each floor when you think again we're usually used to seeing a single story or maybe two-story building surrounded by a large open area full of cars so that's a very different uh visual of what a a car dealership would have looked like at the time yeah i think so i, I and i think the the car buying experience was was different um i i don't know at, at what point uh car dealers got their reputation as as being uh, shady and not trustworthy and i don't <laughs> i don't know that uh that was necessarily different in, in the days of the big showrooms but um uh but but certainly the experience was was a different different kind of experience and and, and of course you know in 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 1910, when the Packard Building was built, and probably even in 1928, uh, not everybody had a car, so so it was a it was a, a different kind of experience. The, the buyers were different as well as well as the sellers. Yeah, it's a more exclusive experience, I guess, at the time. Yeah. And that's interesting because the the few uh, storefront dealerships I can think of that still exist are tend to be boutique, you know, Aston Martin or something. Uh, these really unique. Um, imports where they are still cultivating that sort of boutique exclusive experience that yeah that and, sounds like any car buyer would have had at the time and 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 there are still uh, a, a few uh, dealerships um just past packard's corner um there is, is herb um, chambers out there herb chambers is out there he has uh, three different dealerships he's got a uh, i believe it's a honda a toyota and uh, the third one is one that they, they recently tore down the building and are uh, a building, they're building a new building, which at first I thought, oh, they're probably turning it into apartments. But I've been told that, no, it's, a, it's going to be another dealership. It's, it's a, oh, it's an Audi. I think it's an Audi dealership. Yeah, so a little bit of that old auto row tradition still happening in pretty much the same spots. So that's nice to see. And there are a few uh, Sullivan Tire. There, there are mm-hmm. auto, there's some auto parts stores uh, still on what was Automobile Row. So at some point, we have to talk about the the inevitable decline of Automobile Row. But before we get to that, I want to talk about uh, another one or two of the landmarks. You also already mentioned the Chevron sign that's in Kenmore Square today. But back in the, the uh, day, Sitco sign. Yeah. Uh, that's a Chevron sign. Yes, you mentioned the landmark Sitco sign that's in uh, Kenmore Square today. Back in the day, there was another giant neon petroleum sign uh, very nearby, a, a big shell sign. There was. There, there was. Uh, um, this was not so much an auto dealership, but the building uh, pretty much right next to the what's now the BU Bridge was a Shell service station and the New England headquarters for the Shell Oil Company. And on its roof, it had a large uh, neon Shell sign that uh, 
faced in both directions, uh, east and west along the Charles River. And uh, the the building still stands. It's now the Boston University Academy, a private high school. And there are kind of shell motifs along the outside of the building that I had never noticed until I started researching this. But the, the shell sign itself uh, is no longer there, but one half of it still exists. It was moved across the, the Charles River to a shell station on Memorial Drive in Cambridge, where it still stands uh, today. Okay. I was going to ask if that was the same sign, because yep, I, I see that sign. if I go to a micro center. Yep, <laughs> yep, Memorial, I've been there too. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I see a, a shell sign that I wondered if it was the same one. Yeah, that's the same one, although only half of it. I don't know if it was the western facing half or the eastern facing half. It's only, <laughs> only, only one half. And, um, and, and, and there are a, a, a few other remnants that are left. Uh, one of the longtime dealerships was Commonwealth Chevrolet, which actually occupied uh, two different buildings, both still standing. One of them is now uh, the Star Market near Packard's Corner. And when I was first researching this, as I walked by that building, there was an, uh, an iron fence with these uh, brick fence posts. And there was a, a symbol on all of these fence posts, a metal symbol of a looked like a tire with an arrow going through it. And I looked at that and I said, I bet I know what that is. And sure enough, that building was originally a dealership for the Pierce Arrow uh, Automobile Company. Huh. So that's the star market that's right on Comav. Exactly. Right yeah. The split. Huh. That's something I just learned. Are there other places, businesses, or campus buildings that you can go into today where you can see visible remnants of old automotive businesses? There, there are a few. Um, you may not recognize them as uh, remnants of auto businesses, but but they are. And uh, I, um, there was kind of a a fun one that I just came across recently, I have a, a photograph of a, uh, a Rio dealer, R-E-O, which is another old automobile, uh, which, I've, which I've learned more about. Uh, pe- people who know more about cars will laugh at me for my lack of knowledge on some of the old uh, dealerships. But um, first of all, I learned that uh, Rio is named for, and I'm forgetting his first name, but his uh, middle initial is E, and his last name is Olds. He was the founder uh, of Oldsmobile, and he oh, later uh, formed uh, the Rio and, and and gave it his name. And uh, on the the window of this building in this uh, this picture, uh, one of the models they were selling was the Speedwagon, the Rio Speedwagon, <laughs> which they gave the name of a band. Um, but the, the the picture is uh, there's this beautiful uh, staircase leading up to uh, a balcony. And uh, I hadn't given too much thought to it until I recently saw uh, an article that uh, Brookline was getting its first uh, Taco Bell in a long time. And it was going to be in a building along Commonwealth Avenue. And it's going to be different than most Taco Bells. It's going to be table service. Um, and I looked at the building and, uh, and realized that it's the same building. And it, it, it had, I think, most recently been a 7-Eleven, and uh, at least part of it. And when I went by, uh, that staircase is in there with a balcony. Um, hmm. So uh, I have this great picture of this very elegant-looking place, and now it's kind of a construction site. But I went in and talked to some of the workers and got some pictures of it. And um, The staircase that not quite as elegant as the Packard building, but like the Packard building and the Noise building, had kind of a mezzanine where some of the office workers were, uh, this had one too. And now it's going to be a Taco Bell, but the staircase is still there. 
Uh, earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that one of these dealerships had uh, columns with with essentially gargoyles, but gargoyles of uh, mechanics. Which, which building was that originally? That was, that, that was the uh, Noise Buick building, the one that's now the College of Fine Arts. College and by, of Fine and Arts. And by the way, uh, BU has been doing some major renovation on that building. And one of the things that they're doing is the the storefront windows along Commonwealth Avenue had been filled in and they've opened them up and put glass back in. And uh, and they've cleaned up the uh, the the gargoyles and uh, the space and the grand staircase and and, and much more. I'm looking forward to uh, when it's open again and when uh, we can actually go in there again when we can leave our homes. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to going in anywhere again. Yes. <laughs> so that raises an interesting point. A, a lot of the the buildings, the physical buildings that used to be part of the automotive industry on Comav are now part of the BU campus. Um, and I, I don't have a clear picture of how much of that is direct competition between BU and the car industry and how much of that is just BU picking up properties as they became available. Is, is there any relation between the decline of the car business and the growth of the BU campus or is it just purely coincidence? No, I don't, I don't think so. I think it, uh, it, it really came later. Um, some of those buildings were acquired by BU. Some are still uh, like the building uh, where the Rio dealership was. That's going to be a Taco Bell is uh, is is not owned by BU. Some of the BU owned buildings are given over to retail space, and some of them uh, are used by by BU as as buildings. And uh, certainly between the, uh, the 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 BU Bridge and uh, Kenmore Square. Uh, there are a number of buildings there that are, are classroom buildings and labs that were uh, auto dealerships. And uh, I, I was uh, waiting to go into a, a class in one of the buildings uh, a few months ago and just kind of waiting for the, the, the previous class to come out. And I noticed this this column that just had a very industrial look to it. And I realized it was, it was part of the old building. I also see in some of these classroom buildings, there are these very wide elevators uh, some of which I don't think are used anymore, but they were wide because they were used to to move automobiles. That is truly a, a ghost or shadow of Automobile Row. It really is. So, is there anything you wish I had asked about or asked about in more detail before we start moving toward a con- conclusion? Well, I, I I think one one of the things that's uh, that's interesting is is the uh, the Fuller Building, the, um, which um, I, I mentioned the ramps and 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 various other things, but the First floor, which was the showroom, is, uh, has recently been redesigned and actually opened up to the second floor as something called the Howard Thurman Center for Common Ground. Um, and this is a, uh, a, the Thurman Center. Howard Thurman was a, from the School of Divinity, he was a mentor to, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King when Dr. King, uh, studied at, at BU and a big influence on him and his philosophy of, of nonviolence, uh, resistance and protest. And uh, the Thurman Center, which has been in the basement of the student union in a small space, uh, does a lot of work to kind of foster common ground, uh, how, how people can come together and, and think about and talk about issues. And that first floor and much of the second floor has been turned into a new space for the Thurman Center that is uh, uh, quite, quite, quite beautiful. It really just opened a few months ago. Um, I've gone in there to take some pictures of spaces that I have old pictures of, including uh, I have one picture of a, uh, looks like it's from the early 60s, of a Cadillac on the floor. And I 
got a, a picture more or less of the same space, more or less from the same angle. And uh, while it looks very different, you can definitely see the floor. It's got a, a sort of an ornate floor, and that that is uh, that is still there, still still visible. Um, and and a, and a few other things. There's a a picture of uh, Alvin Fuller in his 80s. So I think that would probably be in the 1950s with an automobile in front of uh, an elevator, and uh, um, that space is now um, a, a kitchen for the the Thurman Center, but. You can still see the elevator uh, and and the little alcove where where he was standing uh, is still there. So so just kind of I mean that's that's one of the things that I've always found uh, intriguing about uh, about history and historical places that uh, places change, but you know that they're the same place and that um, something whether it's a civil war battlefield or uh, a protest march uh, took place in, in in a space that you're standing in. And while I wouldn't put uh, an auto dealership in the same category as either of those, just knowing that you're standing in the same space that was used for a different purpose uh, gives me a little chill sometimes. So, I'm not originally from the Boston area. I'm from deepest Appalachia. And so it took years for me to adjust after moving here to just being able to go and stand on the site of the Boston Massacre, on the site of the Tent City protests, on the site of you know, name your era and topic of yep. history in the Boston area. Just go and see the actual place where it happened. is It's a great feeling. And and I, I grew up in New York in the Bronx, and, um, and uh, I, I think uh, many of us uh, don't appreciate the the, the places we grow up and we think that nothing happened there anyway. So, so no matter, uh, I, I think there are people who grew up here who maybe didn't appreciate it until they were older as well. So, so it's interesting as we look at Comav running through the heart of the BU campus today and look back at Comav running through the heart of the uh, auto row uh, almost a century ago. At the time you would have had trolleys, streetcars coming in and out of Boston in a much wider network than we have now um at the same time you had auto traffic going by outside the windows and people coming into the automotive dealerships and today we have um that same stretch is one of the first areas of the city to get protected bike lanes and the green line still runs right outside with still plenty of automotive traffic foot traffic so it's interesting to see that though the car was king for much of the past century there's still many modes of transportation for any healthy city. Yeah, it's, it's very true. When you stand in the Howard Thurman Center, the former uh, Fuller Cadillac Oldsmobile dealership, and you look out the, the large windows that once gave views of the automobiles inside, looking out now, you see uh, cars going by, Green Line going by, uh, bicycles going by on the on the protected bike lane. Lots of pedestrians. Uh, at one point, uh, I was walking this with uh, Sharon Brody from WBUR, taking pictures. The helicopter flew over. We couldn't quite get it in the picture, but uh, um, and uh, it's been pointed out that you also have uh, um, the railroad down below, which you can't quite see, and the boats going by in the river. So it really is a uh, kind of multimodal transportation hub, and uh, and and it's uh, it's nice to think that. While automobile history might not be made along Commonwealth Avenue anymore, uh, transportation history is, is, is changing and is reflected in this place that once was uh, a mecca of the, the automobile in the early and mid-20th century. 
Yeah, there's an old joke that the BU Bridge is the only place where you can have a plane flying over a car driving over a train that's going over a boat. Right. <laughs> yep. Well, Ken, if people want to learn more about uh, Automobile Row and they'd like to hear more from you, uh, where can they learn more about that? I, I haven't put anything myself online about Automobile Row, but when I uh, first did this story, uh, I did it for um, the new city space at WBUR, which itself is an old auto showroom. And uh, that was recorded, and uh, they did a nice job of uh, video cap- capturing it on video and, and putting all my slides up. So mm-hmm. if you go to the WBUR city space YouTube channel, uh, you can find that presentation. And uh, I do a lot of uh, work about uh, Brookline history. Uh, not all of it has uh, as as much kind of broader impact as Automobile Row, which is more of a regional story and not just a Brookline story. But uh, I uh, blog at uh, brooklinehistory.blogspot.com and the Brookline Historical Society website at brooklinehistoricalsociety.org has many uh, f- uh, photographs and stories. And in this time of uh, working from home, I've been turning a lot of my presentations into uh, virtual walking tours and video presentations, and uh, we will uh, get those up onto our, our website as well. So um, it's uh, I, I think as uh, all of us are learning that as we're we're doing new things by necessity, we're also <laughs> finding new ways of doing things that uh, will be worthwhile once we're out of this crisis as well. So uh, as 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 I'm sure I don't have to tell you. Uh, it's it, it's such a joy doing historical research, but it's even more of a joy uh, being able to share it with others, and uh, that's what that's what you do with your uh, podcast, and uh, that's what I do with uh, walking tours, uh, um, presentations, and 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 a lot more online. And assuming we're all able to gather in large groups again by July, are you still planning to present at History Camp this summer? Uh, I am. I actually attended the very first history camp, which I think was seven years ago at MIT with about uh, 85 people. I was also there. (laughs) I I, I missed the next two because I was away. When I came back for the uh, fourth one, I was uh, really astounded that it had grown to about 350 people. And I've been presenting uh, ever since then. So uh, I... uh, as long as, long as I'm, I'm not away when it's scheduled, I, I, I really look forward to uh, being able to uh, present and share what, uh, uh, what I have found and, and learned and to see all the many other wonderful presentations that History Camp is able to offer. I'll include the, uh, the link to History Camp's website in the uh, show notes this week so people can look forward to seeing you there. Great. Uh, Ken Liss, I just want to say thank you very much for joining us this week. Well, thank you, Jake. It's been a pleasure. If you'd like to learn more about ComAv when it was still known as Automobile Row, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 180. We'll have links to Ken Liss's website and his interview at WBUR City Space. We'll also have a wide selection of pictures from the heyday of Automobile Row. And of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming virtual events and the Forgotten Aquariums of Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you'd like to leave us some feedback, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. 
We're in all your favorite podcasting apps, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, TuneIn Radio, Player FM, and many, many more. Or you can stream the show every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on bostonfreeradio.com. You can also listen on your favorite smart speaker. If you have an Amazon Echo, you can just say, Alexa, play the Hub History podcast. Or if you have a Google Home, you can say, Hey Google, play the Hub History podcast. Sure, playing the latest episode of Hub History, our favorite stories from Boston history. Apple Podcasts is still by far the most popular podcast app. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please consider writing us a brief review. If you do, drop us a line, and we'll send you a Hub History sticker as a token of appreciation. That's all for now. Stay safe out there, listeners.